Okay, welcome everybody to this second installment of the introduction to the Lacanian clinics of psychosis. Um, you may have seen that this seminar is advertised in the first instance as a reading seminar. Um, I thought I might just say a word about the distinction, shall we say, between a reading seminar and a teaching seminar, um, more in terms of the relation between reading and teaching. That introduces, shall we say, the question of teaching in psychoanalysis, the question of what it is that, that could be taught in a discipline that's indexed on the discovery of the unconscious. Is, is the unconscious something that can be taught? Maybe there we would need to make room for the distinction between teaching and transmission. This is a question that obviously has something to do with the nature of psychoanalysis as a discipline, both in terms of the relation between theory and technique, where the common reference is at least to this notion of the unconscious. If we allow, shall we say, that the theory can be taught, that concepts can be thought, can be taught, in what way do we think that psychoanalysis could be taught as a, as a clinical technique? This obviously links us to the broader question of psychoanalytic training, psychoanalytic formation which, as you know, is centered in the Lacanian school on the primacy of the experience of personal analysis, which is not simply a question, as Lacan says, of the preparation of operators, but more an experience of learning to read your own unconscious, with the hope that this would entail a certain modification, shall we say, of one's own subject position. Um, as the central reference for the other components of, of a psychoanalytic training. So this particular course, advertised as an introduction to the clinic of psychosis, we can see that maybe it's not so much a question of the teaching of particular concepts, let alone the teaching of some kind of technique, a technique that could be learnt and then applied to some particular clinical field. But rather, what we would hope, what we would aim, would be to, to give you some kind of experience of reading, grounded in some kind of guided reading of certain fundamental or central texts. The question I'd like to pose for your consideration shall we say at that stage, is in what way reading might itself be considered a fundamental clinical skill. It's certainly difficult to see how one could get very far in Lacanian psychoanalysis without being prepared to read. Um, the specifically psychoanalytic question of, of the relation to, to the text, the Freudian text, the Lacanian text, the text of the unconscious, um, we know to some extent, as Mele points out, that the psychoanalysts, Lacanian psychoanalysts, uh, are, are 
maybe the people of the book as opposed to, to those trained in the statistical basis of evidence-based medicine. Um, we, we pose a certain relation between concepts and experience in relation to this notion of the textual knowledge of the unconscious. Um, and, and as Lacan teaches us, it's very difficult to think of any kind of raw clinical experience that wouldn't be shaped by the concepts that frame it. So if we pose as, as a central aspect of our work this notion of reading as a fundamental clinical skill, if not the <coughs> fundamental clinical skill, then we can make room for the associated question of the, the position of the reader. What is required of the reader in order to be able to read Lacan? And in what way is this question, this experience, a fundamental or central aspect of any engagement with Lacanian psychoanalysis? I mean, we know all these notorious and stereotype notions about the difficulties of reading Lacan, the difficulties of Lacan's style, not just its, its foreignness or the difficulties of translation, um, but, but which, if anything else, in, in this country, in the Anglo-Saxon world, has, has cultivated a tendency to shy away from the Lacanian text, a temptation to, read, to reach for commentaries and, and explanations, guides on how to read Lacan. Despite the fact, shall we say, that Lacan himself advises on the cover of the collected volume of his Ecree, that these are all writings, all texts, that are designed not to be read. How are we to grasp this notion? Lacan presenting us his writings as text designed not to be read. One way, one path to pursue would be via the associated question of understanding, of comprehension. You may be familiar with Lacan's most basic clinical advice to practitioners. I think at the start of <coughs> seminar three, at least, you can find this, where Lacan advises us to be careful not to understand too quickly. In fact, to be wary of relying on any notion of understanding per se. Lacan then situates understanding in the register of some kind of imaginary identification with the patient, with the interlocutor, um, and suggests that in any instance, all we understand is what we already know or what we want to understand. We can contrast this reference to understanding, this advice to be on our guard against the temptations of understanding, with an alternative Lacanian formulation, which leads us precisely onto the side of reading, the notion of reading to, to the letter, of being faithful to the letter of the text. The principle not just of Lacan's return to Freud, his reading of the letter of the Freudian text, but also in the end of his, his clinical orientation, where the, the, aim, the, the, the index of interpretation becomes reduced to the question of reading the letter of the symptom, shall we say. 
all of these thematics, which obviously are elaborated in, in more detail in various parts of Lacan's work, in order to bring into, into question this notion of, of the position of the reader when confronted with the Lacanian text, in order to attempt to at least pose this question in alignment with this notion of reading as a fundamental clinical skill. Um, we might even seek to align, shall we say, the position of the reader of the text with the position of the analyst in the clinic. What is it that would be required of the reader, that would be supposed of the reader, in confrontation with the Lacanian text? And how might this question allow us to start considering this notion of, of, of a key aspect of clinical formation in Lacanian psychoanalysis? Um, this is a thematic that opens up more broadly, but for the moment, for, for our purposes, we, we could say, if nothing else, what it demands of us, requires of us, would be some kind of suspension of our habitual attachment to understanding, even if just to understanding what we already know, um, following maybe in Beyond's clinical formulation of what is required of the analyst in each session which is precisely to forget what you already know in order to be able to hear something that you, that you might have overlooked. And in relation to the reading of some of these texts, we could say allowing ourselves to be questioned by the text, to be divided by the text, or, or to be put in doubt by the text, or at least leaving ourselves being open to supporting the questions posed to us by the text without being precipitated too quickly into grasping for premature answers. All of that, shall we say, as a preamble to our own return to these early texts, and in particular to this case history of the Wolfman, the, the central text from which Lacan will extract the key concepts not just of foreclosure, which we've taken as our central reference for, the, for, this, for the, the notion of the clinic of psychology, but also the concept of, of Nachtlichkeit, the question of deferred action. As we mentioned briefly last time, the two aspects of... The two aspects of this notion, one as deferred action and the other as retroaction, to, to see that actually the, the German term includes two temporal aspects. One, the, the deferred action where th there's a lapse between the effects um, being, being felt in the chain, and the other one, the retroaction where the cause is constituted as active um, in a, a, a loop of, of retroaction. A principle that is very difficult to grasp or to understand without let's say, the notion of the signifying chain, as Lacan elaborates it for us, um, as integral to any notion of signifying causality in this field. Um, if we use, I, I, I posed briefly last time this idea that we use this notion of deferred action, Nachtraglichkeit, in its German term, as, as a framework for our approach to the concept of foreclosure, um, uh, helping us to, to situate 
um, this concept of foreclosure in the first instance as a concept before we go too quickly to try to grasp it as a mechanism. Um, as a concept extracted by Lacan from a reading of the Freudian text. So in the first instance, as essentially a question of reading and a relation to the text, played out, shall we say, between the signifier and, and the letter, suggesting that this relation between the concept of deferred action and that of foreclosure is not simply a question of historical contingency that it happens to be the case that Lacan actually extracts both these concepts from the same, the same text, the case of the wolf mouth, but rather that we would want to pose a more integral relation between these two concepts in order to question the nature of that relation between them as some kind of inside and outside of core and envelope that, that the one might very well be the framework for our approach to grasping what is at stake in the other. Because once again, we always have a temptation to want to proceed too quickly. We want to rush past the, the inconvenient intricacies of grappling with the text in order to get our hands, shall we say, on the essential clinical mechanism of foreclosure to, to strip off the symbolic coverings and, and get under the bonnet to wrestle with the, the mechanics of the question um, without all the distraction of abstract theory, concepts, and interpretation. You may recall the quotations, the citations that I read you last time from Lacan in the field and function of speech and language, where he, concentrate, he, he mentions specifically this question of the relation between theory and experience in psychoanalysis as something to do with the particular nature of the psychoanalytic field itself, where he refers to psychoanalysis, and I cite again, as a discipline that owes its scientific value solely to its theoretical concepts, where the technique cannot be understood nor therefore correctly applied if one misunderstands or misrecognizes the concepts on which it is based. All of this in order to try to persuade you, shall we say, that in a reading seminar, some time spent reading the text might not be completely superfluous, um, given that it's our access to examining the manner in which these concepts are extracted and established by Lacan in the first place, which is integral to how we try to grasp what is at stake in the, in the status of these concepts themselves, their, shall we say, operative value in our reading of the clinical field. Um, I tried also to briefly highlight, in association <coughs> with the clinical questions, what we might call the epistemological questions associated with this notion of Nachtraglichkeit, deferred action, which are themselves absolutely central to the structure of the Wolfman case history. From the organization of the material at stake in the patient's own experience to the questions at stake in the procedure of the treatment, all the way to the challenges of trying to find a way to present that material to us in the writing of the case history itself. Um, we could even say perhaps that one sense of bewilderment in, in trying to grapple with this sprawling case history 
trying to keep track of the argument that Freud is presenting to us is in itself perhaps the most immediate testimony to the challenge that Freud faced up to and overcame in, in writing this case up. So while encouraging you all to go ahead and immerse yourselves in this case, um, it's difficult to see how time would be wasted getting to grips with some of the aspects of this, this probably the central Freudian case. Um, there can't be a more useful formative effect than trying to find your way around this case. We also sought to provide, shall we say, two key points of access, two, two key uh, points of reference around which we might uh, initially try to organize our approach to some of these questions. One of these is the dream of the wolves, which you will find in chapter four, entitled precisely The Dream and the Primal Scene. And the other one is the episode of the hallucination, which you will find recounted at the end of chapter seven, which itself is entitled Anal Eroticism and the Castration Complex. In both these two instances, the dream and the hallucination, we see the key epistemological and clinical questions of the case deployed within that same framework of retroaction. On the one hand, we have the dream of the wolves and, and its interpretation indexed on Freud's construction of this notion of the early primal scene, which is reconstructed but not remembered by the patient. It's, it, it's a construction designed to account for some of the effects of the dream. Some of its, uh, the nature of its impact on the subject. There we find this notion that what the dream does is reactivate in the subject some of the effects of the primal scene. At the same time that the dream is understood as activating his belief in the reality of castration, but in some kind of deferred or retroactive way. So to some extent, one of Freud's central propositions in this case is that the dream makes real the threat of castration that had previously been recognized by the subject as a hypothetical possibility, but until that moment had managed to keep at a distance as if it had nothing to do with the subject himself. This allows us to at least locate, pose the question of subjective implication in the question of castration and in what sense we might consider this particular dream as triggering some kind of sense of the subject's implication in the question of castration. Uh, in the light of the AMP theme on dreams and their interpretation, you see there's a certain interest in going back to, to look at these questions about the relation between the dream and the primal scene. In terms of our particular uh, focus of interest in, in, in this course, Clearly, we would be more interested in the, the parallel question of the hallucination. But, but I, I, I try to sketch some of those questions about the dream in order to bring into view, to some extent, how parallel questions are at stake in how we grasp the status of this episode of the hallucination, which Lacan considers as providing evidence for the operation of foreclosure. Um, one of the questions for us to try to get into focus, because it's, it's not immediately apparent, 
is in what way we might consider this hallucination as related, on one hand, to the concept, the mechanism, if you like, of foreclosure, and on the other hand, the question of how we are to understand the relation between the hallucination and the notion of castration. You'll see, even posed in these simplistic terms, it doesn't, there's nothing simple about how we try to grasp what is the, the relation, even how is the relation posed, whether by, by Freud or by Lacan, as the nature of the link between the hallucination and, and the notion of castration. Um, what, what I would suggest is we try to keep the nature of that relation between hallucination and castration, again, as our guideline for trying to grasp something of the status of the two concepts. Because on the one hand, shall we say, the simplest acceptation of the notion of hallucination could be considered to be a perceptual representation um, of something that's not there. The most common notion of hallucination, it's, it's a representation of something that doesn't exist. How then are we supposed to understand the relation between the hallucination and castration, which is itself indexed on a relation to something that doesn't exist? The question of the, uh, you see, it poses the, the, the question of the very nature or status of the notion of castration, which we could say in itself is the dream of something that was never there, the maternal phallus, that returns in the form of horror at the threat of its loss. Um, that initial introduction to, to the reading of the texts, let's say at least gives us four, quest, four, four terms. between foreclosure and castration as a question, um, and then in, in terms of that relation, we'd have to make room for both the dream and the hallucination. Oh, this is a slightly arbitrary framework, I'll give you something to look at while we, we speak. But it also, you see, straight away helps us to pose the question, what's the relation between the dream and the hallucination? Um, how do we locate the distinctions between the form of, of, of representation that's involved and its relation to perception, imagination, and symbolic coordinates. Uh, these are just some of the questions we might try to open up while taking on this initial text that we posed as our first reference for today's session which, um, just, sorry, Jean, that might be a little messy, is it not? <laughs> um, just, just to backtrack a, a moment, um, when I suggested that the central reference text for this year's work 
is the case of the Wolfman, and ultimately Millet's reading of the Wolfman in the 13 lessons on the Wolfman, available to you in two issues in English translation and two issues of Lacanian ink, issues 35 and 36, 13 lessons on the Wolfman. Um, I urge you to get on with reading those texts because that's where we're going. Um, in the meantime, it's difficult to grasp what's at stake in, in Miller's argument if we aren't familiar a little bit, shall we say, with the basis in, in the case of the Wolfman itself. I urge you to get on with having a look, finding your way around the Wolfman. If we need a point of entry to the case of the Wolfman, which itself is some sprawling um, monster, we would choose those two chapters. Chapter 4 with the dream, chapter 7 with the hallucination at the end of that chapter. If we wanted even more an easy introduction to those two chapters, we would choose the two brief Freudian texts that to some, to some extent announce the publication of the Wolfman case history. One being the 1913 text called Material in Dreams from Fairy Tales, you can remind me what the exact title is, which introduces for the first time the dream of the wolves in the tree gives the, the initial isolated analysis of the Wolfman's dream of the wolves in the tree from 1913, part of the series of, of texts on dreams running through those years. And then this 1914 paper on false reconnaissance um, in psychoanalytic treatment, uh, which introduces for the first time a reduced account of the Wolfman's key hallucination. Um, uh, this 1914 text on false recognition, I suppose, although it's quite striking that the, the title is given in French, Freud maintains it in French, which to some extent gives us a pointer despite our, our, our urge for easy translations. This term reconnaissance, which you see is straight away is a Lacanian term, where it helps us to line up notions of reconnaissance, méconnaissance, and now false, false reconnaissance, to ask in what way might those three terms be considered operators in the same series, uh, or at least help us to locate some kind of conceptual operator in Lacan's text, where, as you know, recognition, wherever the Hegelians are, Recognition is certainly a central operator um, in, the, uh, in the early years of, of the seminars, precisely the Hegelian influence, the, the master-slave dialectic, definition of desire as, as a desire for recognition, um, the notion that the first object of desire is recognition by the other. But it, it, it's striking, we know that term recognition but we're not quite sure in translation how to link the notion of symbolic reconnaissance with the notion of imaginary meconnaissance, which is used in those early seminars to characterize the status of the ego. So we see between those two terms, reconnaissance and meconnaissance, recognition and misrecognition, we have the dialectic that Lacan is opening up between the subject and the ego, symbolic and the imaginary which leaves us the question, where do we make room for this notion of false reconnaissance, false recognition, or déjà reconté, um, uh, which Freud himself 
introduces, as his own coining of the term in this text, where we will encounter the Wolfman's hallucination. Um, where Freud coins this notion of déjà reconté, already told, in strict analogy with the more familiar French term déjà vu, already seen. Straight away we have, a, again, a micro-question of the relation between those two terms. In what way is this notion of the already said to be articulated in relation to the notion of the already seen, especially when we get to the question of trying to get to grips with this hallucination that's central to this text. So, as you see, the title of the text itself gives us an introduction to its reading. The introductory sentences are deceptively simple. Freud will say something along the lines of, it not infrequently happens in the course of an analytic treatment that the patient after reporting some fact that he has remembered, will go on to say, but I've told you that already. <coughs> um, if you've got the text yourself, you can look at, that, uh, you can look at the sentence yourself. I'm not going to, to, to write it up on the board. The patient, after reporting some fact that he has remembered, will go on to say that I've told you that already. So we have, in that initial sentence, we have three terms. The fact, the remembering, and the reporting, which we could try to align with the three terms of remembering, repeating, and working through in the parallel text that comes after, in, in the series of technical papers, comes after this text, influenced by the questions raised by this text. So we have the fact, the remembering, and the reporting, and then the addition of a qualification, but I've told you that already. Now, if you had gone to the trouble to do some of the reading, um, given that there were only three texts that were, were, were posed, it might occur to you the striking parallels between the introduction to this text and the introduction to the 1925 text on negation. I'll read you the introductory, which also begins with, an, with a reference to the manner in which material is introduced by the patient in analysis. The manner in which our patients, this is from 1925 negation, the manner in which our patients bring forward their associations during the work of analysis gives us the opportunity. Now you will think that I mean to say something insulting, but really I have no such intention. So you see this text from 10, 11 years later, starts with exactly the same framework of a, so in its deceptively innocuous formulation, um, shows Freud starting from the most minimal clinical formulation of clinical experience, and then certainly in this 1925 text, elaborating something beyond the bounds of our conceptual grasp out of minimal clinical data. Um, so on the one hand, this term, um, you will think that I mean to say something insulting, but really I have no such intention, uh, which brings in relation the, the question of negation in relation to the content of the statement. You will think it's my mother, but it's not. Um, uh, in this instance, this first formulation, you will think, 
uh, allows us to distinguish, if nothing else, the meaning and the intention of that phrase via the you will think of the other. Um, the second instance, you will think it's my mother, but it's not, uh, would allow us to separate, shall we say, the role of negation applied to the content of the statement. Um, or, or let's say, if we make room for the distinction between statement and enunciation, to introduce the question of the incidence of negation on the statement versus the incidence of negation on the enunciation, the fact of saying. Um, it's on the basis of this distinction between the content and the enunciation, effectively Lacan's distinction between statement and enunciation and utterance, <laughs> Freud will propose that we simply take the liberty of disregarding the negation and picking out the subject matter alone of the association. This leads him to assert at the foot of this very first page of the text on negation, page 235 in the standard edition, he says, thus, the content of a repressed image or idea can make its way into consciousness on condition that it is negated. <laughs> Negation is a way of taking cognizance of what is repressed. You see, incidentally, there that taking cognizance is another modality of this operator of recognition. Would you mind to read it again? Again and again, as many times <laughs> as you wish. <laughs> Thus, the content of a repressed image or idea can make its way into consciousness on condition that it is negated. Negation is a way of taking cognizance of what is repressed. The striking formula, when you read it the first time, would be easy to gloss over, but you see it's a mode of negation that's not equivalent to repression. It, it, it's rather a way of taking cognizance, i.e. A, a way of recognizing what has already been repressed. And to some extent is posed here as a particular mode of relating to unconscious material. Um, I, I'm just going to run us through this single paragraph of the argument in negation before we go back to the analogous argument in the earlier text on false recognition. Um, but having posed negation as a mode of recognition of the repressed unconscious, Freud will then take the next step, the, the top of page 236 in the standard edition, saying negation is already a lifting of the repression, though not, of course, an acceptance of what is repressed. Um, Incidentally, if any of those who might have taken the trouble to read the, 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 the commentary, the, the text of Hippolyte to which Lacan will be responding, might have noticed that when Hippolyte reads this text, he hide, and that sentence, this negation is already a lifting of the repression, he highlights the original German term which is translated in the English as the lifting of repression, which in German is Aufhebung. So negation is already here posed as an Aufhebung of repression. 
um, which certainly adds uh, a, a dimension to this text or, or uh, room for, for some questions. In what way would negation be considered as a form of sublimation of repression? You know that to some extent one of the translations for Aufhebung is sublimation. Um, in this instance, it's, it's translated as a lifting of repression. But what? Yes, but we can still try to to put the Aufhebung in its place there to question what kind of operation is involved even in this notion of 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 raising up as as an as an Aufhebung, and in what way would sublimation as a translation of Aufhebung be a different operation? Um, we don't have to be able to answer all the questions. Um, anyway, the distinction that Freud is seeking to make at this point, on the one hand, negation is already a lifting of repression, although not an acceptance of what is repressed. Um, Freud aligns this with the distinction that we might think we're familiar with, the separation between the intellectual and the the intellectual, the ideational component, and the affective component associated with it, the idea that in repression, the destiny of the idea is, is different to the destiny of, of the affective component. Hence Freud's claim in this text that with the help of negation, only one consequence of the process of repression is undone. The outcome is a kind of intellectual acceptance of the repressed, while at the same time, what is essential to the repression persists. In other words, the effective component of repression persists. If you are familiar, or let's put it this way, this is a fairly major aspect of the Wolfman's presentation. It's one of the central obstacles to the treatment of the case, which centers precisely on this kind of splitting, particularly in terms of the Wolfman's relation to castration, where there's an acceptance, a recognition of castration in principle as an idea, but at the same time considered as something that does not affect him. Hence, again, the central role played by the dream in this history as the deferred realization of the threat of castration, which we could say this notion of the dream as a realization of the threat of castration is the very opposite, shall we say, of a fulfillment of a wish, making real of the threat of castration at the point at which it has something to do with him, something that concerns him. Um, we see the, we have questions about, in relation to repression and castration, the notion of the threat versus the realization when it comes to castration, the distinction between the intellectual and the effective components of repression, and this question of subjective implication. <laughs> something that he's able to recognize at an intellectual level, but able at the same time to maintain a distance from its subjective implications for him, which is, as I said, one of the central peculiarities of, of the case. At this point in the text on negation, Freud will go on then to introduce the distinction between the judgment of attribution and the judgment of existence. <coughs> rather than leading you into the, the thickets of this question of the distinction between the judgment of attribution and the judgment of existence, when we've invited Susanna Hula precisely to lead us through some of those questions in the second part of today's session. 
let's return for the moment to our initial text on false recognition. Um, after introducing this particular mode of reporting a fact that the patient has remembered, accompanied by the conviction that it is something that he has already told the analyst previously, Freud will question the sense of conviction involved, pointing out that the sense of conviction has no relation to the accuracy of the memory. Hence, it's not to be taken as, an object, as a testimony to the objective value of the fact at stake. Um, we can ask what, whether putting this notion of the sense of conviction with, the, with which the patient asserts, I've told you that already, how it might be lined up to pose a question to the, to the role of certainty that plays in, in some forms of, of psychosis. It has an absolute conviction, um, even though it's, a, let's say, a subjective conviction rather than an objective reference. Um, as Freud says on the first page of, of false recognition, this is something that can easily be played out as a dispute between the analyst and the analysant, where it becomes a relation of either or. Either I'm wrong or you wrong, imputation of fault to the analyst. As Freud says, since one of the two persons concerned must necessarily be in the wrong, it may just as well be the physician as the patient who's fallen victim to a paramnesia. So Freud's quite happy to, to, uh, to consider the conditions under which the analyst might have uh, forgotten wrong, which involve questions of countertransference. But he goes on to say, in the great majority of cases, it's the patient who turns out to have been mistaken, and he can be brought to recognize the fact. At this point, he, he gives an explanation of the fact that the patient might have had the intention of speaking about this fact, of giving this information, but had been prevented by resistance from carrying out that intention. And as Freud says, and then afterwards confused the recollection of the intention with the recollection of its performance. How, I, I don't think this particular analysis takes us very far, but if nothing else, this is the framework that allows Freud to introduce the notion of false reconnaissance, which he, he poses as completely analogous to what occurs in cases of deja vu. Um, as, as I've said, we can at least question what kind of relation there might be between this notion of the already said and the already seen as it plays out in the phenomena of the hallucination. Um, taking deja vu as the template for this notion of false recognition, false reconnaissance, Freud describes it as a spontaneous feeling, it's a sentiment, a spontaneous feeling that the subject has, which is formulated as I have been in this situation before. I've been through all of this already. Without, Freud emphasizes, without ever being in a position to confirm his conviction by discovering an actual recollection of the previous occasion. I, I think this is an important qualification which, which Freud repeats. Uh, because it's, if nothing else, it shows in what way this instance can be distinguished from the standard model of repression, a parapraxis like the forgetting of a proper name, or alternatively, the emergence of a, of a screen memory, where analysis of the, of the parapraxis is able to show 
effectively how one memory came to displace another, to take the place of another, how one signifier came to bear upon another signifier, leading to that signifier becoming unterdrück um, within the broad framework of, of metaphor. Um, this instance of déjà vu, he, he emphasizes that the original event, the original index memory is never discovered. So it, it, it's the repression of something that never happened. Um, there's a reference to the psychopathology of everyday life uh, where Freud gives a more elaborate account. If you've again looked at this text on, on false recognition, Freud gives three instances, three clinical examples of this notion of false reconnaissance. One is uh, uh, taken effectively from a parapraxis, from uh, the psychopathology of everyday life. The second one is the Wolfman's hallucination. And the third one is this account that he receives in, a, in, in correspondence from an unknown correspondent, which we're going to look at uh, as well. The one question is how we understand the status of these three clinical instances, whether they in fact analogous or uh, three different versions of, of the same phenomenon. Um, the three clinical examples of, of déjà vu or false recognition given in this 1914 paper. We will, we will skip to the introduction of the second instance, which is the introduction of the Wolfman's hallucination. He goes straight to the point. Um, but effectively, this is the first account of the Wolfman's hallucination, which is introduced via this notion of, of déjà reconté, the effect of déjà reconté. Um, and he introduces it as follows. A patient said to me in the course of his associations, when I was playing in the garden with a knife, that was when I was five years old, and cut through my little finger. Oh, I only thought it was cut through, but I've told you about that already. And that's the full initial text of the Wolfman's presentation of his episodic hallucination. Um, we can see to some extent this is effectively just the tip of the iceberg. It's, it's the fleeting trace in association of a hallucination, the very hallucination from which Lacan is going to extract the concept of foreclosure. Uh, it's also worth noting at this stage that there's more than one account of, of this event, this hallucination. In this particular text, Freud will go on precisely to ask the Wolfman to repeat his story, which itself then emerges as some kind of false repetition, um, where the more detailed account is effectively an elaboration of the more condensed initial account let's say, some kind of commentary, but without an original. Um, it also introduces us, shall we say, to the temporal envelope of the hallucination, going back to the notion of deferred action. Here, via the simple grammatical form of the telling itself, we can see, we can make room for the position of the subject in the statement and in the enunciation via a temporal modality. When I was playing with a knife, that was when I was five years ago. 
I cut through my finger. Oh, I only thought it was cut through. We, we see here the effect of autocorrection, which in some ways integral to the experience of the hallucination itself. Freud will pose the hallucination as an attempt to autocorrect an unwelcome perception. Also, in this particular account in, in 1914, the knife plays a more prominent role than it does in the, in, in the account in the case history itself. We hear, we hear the story of, of the uncle who went away on a journey and he asked the wolfman and his sister, what presents do you want me to bring you? And the, sis and, and the sister asked for a book. We don't know whether that's the book that she used to scare him with the picture of the wolves. And he asked for a knife. And this is the knife that he will use for cutting notches in the walnut tree. A knife to kill the sister. Or maybe a knife to kill the sister, or at least to, to stop the wolf. Um, and even in a footnote on page 204, there's a, a subsequent correction of the story. The footnote goes as follows. In telling the story again on a later occasion, he made the following correction. I don't believe that I was cutting the tree. That was a confusion with another recollection, which must also have been hallucinatory falsified, of having made a cut in a tree with my knife and of blood having come out of the tree. So we see there's nothing straightforward in this minor episodic hallucination that barely leaves a trace on the wolf, in the wolfman's memory. We have the story of the knife in relation to the question of, of the severed finger, which Freud will say is an unmistakable, could be taken as an unmistakable equivalent for his penis. What maybe we forget to question is the, the unmistakable, let's say, symbolic implications of all these elements, all, 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 all these elements tied up in the chain of associations. The knife, the uncle, the, the cut, the finger, the tree, the blood, the woman, the, the, the wound. So when we pose the question here of the notion of foreclosure in relation to this hallucination, it's clearly not for a lack of symbolic equivalence. If anything, the whole zone is teeming with symbolic equivalence. It's not that there's a lack of symbolic represent representatives. Everything stands for something else. Although, to some extent, the original reference is always absent. But in any case, Freud himself poses this hallucination as the index of the Wolfman's relation to castration more precisely in the sequence of the treatment, as evidence of his having had a fear of castration. So here the content of the hallucination articulated with the mode in which it emerges in memory and telling, the, the discursive framework within which this memory of the hallucination emerges, um, raises the question of or leaves hanging the question of why it was that he felt so certain that he had told it to Freud before. Here Freud will sketch an answer 
within the same framework as the parapraxis in terms of a confusion of intentions. He had meant to speak about the, the story of the uncle and that the story of the uncle was a way to introduce the story of the hallucination, but resistance had stopped him. So he remembered that he'd had the intention, but the resistance prevented him from carrying it out. When Lacan will address this question in seminar one, and, and let's not forget that there's more than one version of this, this text in Lacan as well. There's the original uh, analysis, the original presentation by Hippolyte in the course of seminar one, and Lacan's introduction and response that's given in the, in the published edition of seminar one. Then there's the version later written up for the Ecree. So, so we already have two superimposed texts, two superimposed versions of Lacan that we can read one against the other. Um, in seminar one, Lacan will place emphasis on the fact that when faced with this hallucination, this observation was accompanied by unspeakable terror in the subject. He found himself unable to say anything to his nurse alongside him, his closest confidant, the person to whom he tended to refer all of his fears and emotions. On page 58 of Seminar 1, Lacan will say, it is as if this person to whom he immediately refers all his emotions were annulled. Lacan thus proposes that in this experience, it's not just the finger that's amputated, but it's, the, it's as if the person to whom he could refer the experience was at the same time annulled. It's as if the other no longer exists. I'll read you a fuller quote from the bottom of page 58 in Seminar 1, Lacan's initial analysis of this instance. He says, let's look at the wolf man. There was no beyahum for him, no realization on the gentle plane. There is no trace of this plane, no realization of, of the genital plane. This is the English translation plane. with plane register. There is no trace of this plane, i.e. the genital plane, in the symbolic register. The only trace that we have of it is the emergence, not at all in his history, in other words, not at all in the register of memory, but rarely in the external world as a minor hallucination. Castration, which is precisely what didn't exist for him, manifests itself in the form of something that he imagines. He imagines having cut his little finger so deeply that it's hanging solely by a little piece of skin, presumably the foreskin. He is then overwhelmed by a feeling of catastrophe, catastrophe that is so inexpressible that he doesn't even dare to talk about it to the person by his side. What he doesn't dare talk about is this. It is as if the person to whom he immediately refers all his emotions were annulled. The other no longer exists. There is a sort of immediate external world of manifestations perceived in what I will call the primitive real, a non-symbolized real, despite the symbolic form in the usual sense of the term that this phenomenon takes. 
So we see even it's not just that at that point Lacan is looking for a distinction between between real and reality, a, a distinction that's not fully elaborated at this stage of his work, but he's also making room for a distinction between symbolic and the register of the symbolic. A non-symbolized real despite the symbolic form in the usual sense of the term that this phenomenon takes. Um, in the course of the argument in seminar one, Lacan is, is, arrives at this question of the Wolfman's hallucination, posing the question in terms of a polarized op opposition between the ego and speech within the framework of his schema L, uh, the ego and, and true speech, little other, big other, symbolic imaginary. We can trace from page 53 in Seminar 1 how he poses this question as polarized between these two terms, speech and the ego. The ego is obstacle to speech. Here on page 59, he will conclude his analysis in the following terms. And I, I, I'm going to read you both paragraphs because you'll see to what extent it provides a condensed framework of the much fuller elabor uh, elaboration that he'll unpack in the Acree text on the response to Hippolyte. What he says is this, and he, he gives it this form at the level of this completely primitive experience. He, he gives it this formulation. What is not recognized erupts into consciousness in the form of the scene. We are more familiar with the later formulation about what is not recognized in the symbolic returns from the real. Here, in this polarization between speech and the ego, he says, what is not recognized erupts into consciousness in the form of the scene. And he goes on to say, if you go deeply into this particular polarization, you will find it much easier to broach the ambiguous phenomenon known as déjà vu. You see, he's reading this analysis with the framework of the reference to déjà vu. The ambiguous phenomenon known as déjà vu, which lies between these two modes of relation, the recognized and the seen. In déjà vu, something in the external world is carried to the limit and emerges with a special pre-signification. Retrospective illusion relates this perceived thing endowed with an original quality, to the domain of déjà vu. He goes on to say, Freud is talking of nothing, nothing other than this when he tells us that any experiencing of the external world implicitly refers to something which has already been perceived in the past. Um, that is why we are here brought back to the level of the imaginary as such the level of the model image of the original form, what we discover here are the problems raised by platonic theory, not of remembering, but of reminiscence. And you, you will know that Lacan maintains the framework of this distinction between remembering and reminiscence all the way to, to the very last texts where he'll, he'll return, as, as we saw in Miller's elaboration from, uh, in the text available in uh, the Lacanian Review 6 on the theme of urgency in the late Lacan, where again it's a question of that, that articulation. What's at stake in the difference? Um, in the first instance here, I think it's something played out as a distinction between imaginary and symbolic, whereas 
in the later Lacan, I think he's working on the distinction between symbolic and real and the question of imaginary mediation. It's very difficult to track this argument in some of the English translations because we have slightly wayward translations of those two terms of recognition and reminiscence which are not consistent across all the different, so, so we don't always see the articulations. And remembering, repeating, so and, and no, working no, at the front. No, no, he, he says, uh, what the hysterics don't remember, they have the reminiscence. They reminisce. Yeah. Which comes like from the real. Huh? Not from No, not real, no, but Wittlerkeit. Uh, Reality. Um, if you will bear with me for five more minutes, we'll be at the end, and then we'll, we'll have some room to, to introduce some, some of these questions. Um, but we can see that that question runs through the argument of remembering, repeating, and working through, where there's probably, let's say, remembering, reminiscing, and repeating. And it's not quite clear how those three modalities play out in relation to, to, to particular material. Um, which form of repetition is played out between remembering and, and reminiscence. Um, anyway, I, 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 I'm just highlighting those passages in seminar one because they provide us with a reduced form, reduced framework of the argument that he's going to elaborate more fully in, in, in the, the Accree paper on the response. It, it's easier to track some aspects of the argument in, in, the, in the more condensed version in Seminar 1, and also helps to bring into to view the modifications in his argument where he's following a slightly different track when it comes to the written up text um, which is not reduced to, to the same terms between the, the ego and, and, and the said. Um, but I will point out that in seminar one, he introduces these questions also in relation to the episode of acting out from the case by Chris, the man of fresh brains. So we see these two clinical instances posed side by side in seminar one, the, the Wolfman hallucination is introduced by analysis, uh, 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 reference to the Chris case. In this, the broader text that's our central focus on the response to Hippolyte, there'll be the substantive analysis of the Wolfman uh, hallucination, followed by the elaboration of the Ernest Chris, without it being quite clear in what way is he posing these two as two alternatives. Once we sensitize to the questions posed by that conjunction, it becomes easier to see to be that when we get into seminar three, um, for instance, chapter six of seminar three on, on psychosis, chapter six entitled The Psychotic Phenomenon on Its Mechanism, you will see Lacan taking up these questions in almost exactly the same terms, or at least within the same framework, starting with an introduction of the reference to the Chris case, and then going on to the question of, of Verwerfung. Um, starting, uh, it's the, the Chris case between pages 79 and 81 in seminar three on psychosis, and then the third part from 81, page 81 forward to the end of the chapter, taking up the relation between Verwerfung and, and Verdrangen. So yes, it's, uh, there we have a third version of this argument 
elaborated within the context of his analysis of Schreber, but again, posing, reading the Wolfman's hallucination in relation to the acting out of, of Chris's patient. Um, I, I'm going to leave some of those questions in the safe hands of Susanna, who's, who's going to take some of this up um, uh, after the break in relation to, to the response. But I'll just uh, read Freud's conclusion to this brief paper, which was my, which was my focus for the day. Freud concludes after he introduces the Wolfman's hallucination, but he doesn't, he, he doesn't take it very far. He says, it seems unnecessary to add anything new by way of interpretation to this little occurrence, so far as it throws light on the phenomenon of false reconnaissance. As regards the subject matter of the patient's vision, I may remark that, particularly in relation to the castration complex, similar hallucinatory falsifications are of not infrequent occurrence. They can just as easily serve the purpose of correcting unwelcome perceptions. And there's the question that I think is, is, is one reference for, for our, as we go forward. In what way can this hallucination be considered as a mode of correcting an unwelcome perception, which is Freud's way of locating the notion of castration as an unwelcome perception. I see something that's not there. Um, I, might, I, I might just point, I, I, I'm going to give us a breather there, but I might point you to the third instance in this brief question, which uh, Lacan himself poses as entirely analogous to the Wolfman, which is this, this, the account of Freud's correspondent who observed a penis of the same kind as my own. As a punishment, my hand was soundly slapped, and to my great terror, I saw my little finger fall off and fall into the pail. For a long time, I was convinced I had lost a finger, up to the time, I believe, at which I learnt to count. But I'll leave you to read that on page 206 of the five pages of this brief text, which wouldn't entirely put you out of your way. But shall we leave room for some questions and discussion? Yeah, I picked up what you said on the... Um that there is a symbolic um, words. Um, the fact that this foreclosure is not sterile in the terms of symbolic production and symbolic equivalence, uh, and that indeed lots of things cannot lead to another, despite it being associated with foreclosure. And it's true that I was struck when you read the Wolf, well, not when you read, when I read the Wolfman, I missed the term from um, uh, repression to rejection. Yes. Because it's true, we are really, he, talks, uh, he, he starts with this infantile neurosis, stays on the mode of neurosis, talks about repression, repression, and you get like, you get sleepy and you get used to repression, repression. And before I was questioning that, the fact that it, that, that this foreclosure, how can it be so productive? And so where I am now is when I, I, I saw out of this belief, I went back to, <laughs> yes. back to the question of reading, and I, and, and I seem to notice that what is um, being repressing uh, when, when, when Freud, uh, talks about repression is more about the scene and the primal scene yeah. and not necessarily about castration 
it's interesting how I had read, so I don't know where I am now, I got a curiosity about my first reading, where I thought that I had read that he had repressed the castration, mm -hmm. but Freud seems to see that he's repressing more elements of the primal scene, yeah. and already elements that was built from the primal scene rather than castration itself. Yeah. Well, I think when you say, when you read it, you missed the turn to, to foreclosure. Yeah. Well, to some extent, until Lacan, everybody missed that turn to foreclosure. And to some extent, we could say Freud himself did, although that's not entirely true. And, and, but it, and Lacan says himself in, in the response, no one has highlighted this question as far as I know until it's, so it's, it's Lacan who unpicks that question of foreclosure from its entanglement with the notion of, of repression. So uh, th this, is, uh, th this is the stake for us to see how Lacan takes that, let's say, the, the minor trace in the Freudian text of this alternative concept and, and extracts it and, and sets it up as a, as, a, as a conceptual operator in its own right, which will then become the basis for an entire reorganization of the psychoanalytic clinic, not just the clinic of psychosis, but the clinic of psychoanalysis, Lacanian clinic uh, across the board. That's on the way. The other question not to overlook would be the fact that Freud treats the wolfman as a neurotic. It's from the case of an infantile neurosis. So obviously, repression is his primary, is his central reference, which is why that kind of tangle that, that gets up to between uh, repression and, and foreclosure is not something that, that he concentrates on. On the one hand, there's the question, shall we say, the broader question of the Wolfman's structure and, and the nature of the case and the material, how we read and organize the material of the case, which is why it's, it's very elucidating to read some of the supplementary material of the treatment, not just the Freudian treatment, because we know that the Wolfman ended up, to some extent, subsidized by the discipline of psychoanalysis, per se, after the Russian Revolution. Um, and th there's certainly the subsequent treatment where Freud referred him to Ruth Mack Brunswick, where she treats him following what is far more clearly, could far more clearly be called a psychotic break, where he has, he has a problem with, uh, with his nose. Uh, he, um, and they are far clearer psychotic phenomena in relation to the preoccupation with the hole in his nose, the relation to the, to the dentist, the doctor, the, the surgeon, um, and, and all kinds of other more paranoid manifestations, which make it easier to make a case for a, a, a psychosis. That's not something that would be that easy to make on the basis of the material that we have in the Freudian case, even though there's a hallucination at stake, because as Lacan says, it's a minor hallucination, one doesn't have to be psychotic to have a hallucination. Um, that's the broad question, again, of, of how we understand the distinction between hallucination and delusion, because one doesn't have to be psychotic to have a delusion either. We all have our own delusions. But there's still the question, but what's the relation between a hallucination and, and a delusion? How do we separate them out and, and locate them in the register? Fine. The, the only other thing that I would say, the third, on, on that question between 
in Freud between repression and foreclosure, if we go back and look at those early papers from the 1890s, the, the, the second paper on the neuropsychosis of defense, the, the earlier draft on paranoia, where he presents a fully-fledged clinical case, there he's already he's got the distinction between repression and foreclosure. He, he's lining up the, the three operators, in fact, the three chapters of the, the text on the neuropsychosis of defense is it's hysteria, obsession, and psychosis. And he's trying to line them up as three defense neuropsychoses. Um, and it, it, he will be situating repression, um, I, I'm not sure what the second one is, and, and foreclosure as an alternative term at, at that stage, trying to locate them as modalities of repression, three different modalities of almost as if they all fall under the, the, the umbrella of repression. And it's maybe not until Lacan takes up the question more seriously in terms of repression and the return of the repressed, including the mode in which the material returns is as important for understanding how we grasp the root mechanism because then it becomes clearer that the way the material returns in a hallucination is not the same way as the way that the material returns in a, in a hysteria or a neurosis. My, my reading of those early texts is that that is almost clearer in the early texts because yeah. it's kind of where, where that idea, that repressed idea is displaced onto, it's displaced onto the body, it's displaced yeah. onto another idea, it's Yeah, it, 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 it's striking because we tend to ignore those because we think, oh, well, Freud's moved on and we've moved on and Lacan's moved on, therefore. But even earlier in some of the drafts, there's that draft on paranoia to fleece. And, and then because there's a fully fledged clinical treatment of a case of paranoia within a very reduced framework where, where, where Freud has those parameters, as you say, far more clearly outlined that subsequently with, with, with some of the later elaborations. It, it would be interesting not just to go back and, and take the clinical instance that he poses there in some detail in the third part of the neuropsychosis, the second neuropsychosis, as a, as a Freudian case of, of paranoia, including how would that be read in Lacanian terms, in relation to the 1915 Freudian paper on a case of paranoia running counter to the theory of, of the disease, I think, which is once again, it, it, it's a lovely clinical case. It's only two or three sessions. It's the one with the click of the camera. And actually, if you read Lacan in the response to Hippolyte, he speaks of the click of something being recognized. He uses the term click just in passing. And it, it would provide a, an interesting basis to return to that particular case, which is, 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 has fully elaborated clinical material, but would perhaps be organized in slightly different terms on the basis of the Lacanian reading. So there's work to be done looking at those texts again and seeing what they can still teach us today. Would it be possible to hypothesize um, how the Wolfman's hallucination might have changed or what else might have happened if it were clearly a case of repression and not foreclosure? 
we can always ask these questions as, uh, as ways of clarifying our, our, our own ideas, shall we say, as, as research questions, even as counterfactual questions to bring into, even to bring into focus that material. My way of addressing those questions is not so much to bank on, that's part of the way I, I, I've tried to, to approach, uh, our way of approaching the, the concept of foreclosure rather than presuming it's a mechanism that's buried somewhere in the cerebellum. Um, to even, in relation to repression and the return of the repressed, it's more the modes of return than the original mechanism. What account, and, and that's uh, Lacan's basic question in seminar three, most obviously at the start of the seminar three, what accounts for the fact that the results of a florid psychosis are so different from a neurosis, which he will explore along the avenue of the modes of return of the unassimilated material. And from the analysis of the modes of return, whether in hallucination or in, or in delusion, for instance, in, in Schreber, he will then conjecture what must the operation have been that can account for the fact that we're faced with that material, which is much more useful than thinking that we start with, with foreclosure and then we get a delusion. It's no, we, we, we faced with a delusion and then we have to, to, to some extent, it's the mechanism that's the, that's the, the deduction, that's the hypothesis, even repression. If you, if you read Freud, even the introductory lectures, he starts with resistance, and he poses a mechanism of repression to account for the resistance experienced in the clinic. Mm -hmm. So the primary phenomenon is resistance in the transference, and the explanation for resistance is repression. So repression is not the primary mechanism. Repression is the deduced cause of the effects. Um, and, and that's why, shall we say, when it comes to repression and the return of the press, that, that, that's his preoccupation. And that's why he insists on the notion that repression and the return of the press are the same thing. You can't have one without the other. In, in fact, it's... it's a and then for foreclosure, it's the mode of return in the real from which we deduce what foreclosure must be. And to some extent, the elaboration, most of the elaboration of the early chapters of Seminar 3 is around that question, how do we account for the fact that in psychosis we are, are faced with these clinical <coughs> phenomena, which are so different in register uh, and there's where he goes back to, to the distinction between uh, neurosis and psychosis and the Freudian explanation for the distinction on neurosis and psychosis in the 20s, loss of reality. And he says, well, relation to reality isn't a, isn't an, a valid enough reference. We need relation to the signifier rather than relation to the reality as our primary reference. And then we understand, well, here something has been uh, gone wrong at the level of the relation to the signifier. Um, someone else talk for a while. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, Roger, that for me it's always very interesting how Lacan points out the way in which Freud failed in these cases. Hmm. Um, and in this case, the teaching, I can't remember if it was Lacan or Millet, that they say that although Freud concluded that this was a neurosis, in the text, he himself, Freud, keeps talking about something that bothers him when he constructs a case. Yes. I don't know, I'm not sure how in English that's been translated, but there's a third force 
huh. that runs underneath um, all the time, that keeps appearing when he constructs a case, and that keeps bothering him. And that difficulty in constructing the case is what Lacan says, this is precisely what we need to learn from this case. Um, I don't know if you could say yep. something else about this. Um, I, I, I would yes. like to... Uh, Please, Susanna. Even though Freud calls it a neurosis, but sometimes a psychoanalyst um, acts according to what appears in the clinic and not uh, related to how he theorizes it. And I think that you can have uh, the idea that for him also uh, this man was a psychotic uh, patient because he doesn't believe in the end of analysis, which is something that happens with psychosis. It, there is no end of analysis, and the, the proof is that two, two proofs we have. One, that he said, we shall finish in this date, and he organized a day to finish the treatment. <coughs> and the other proof is that we had to refer him to uh, the other analyst. Mm-hmm. Meaning that uh, the the fact of the psychosis was not uh, so far from Freud. The the other end of this, just two remarks. The Miller chapters on reading the Wolfman are a little tricky to get to grips with, but they're in English translation. But one thing he does highlight, and what's striking is those 13 sessions of Miller's course that he returns persistently to the reading of the case of the Wolfman. You see there's absolutely something at stake. And in fact, they, the, they, the sessions from 1988, the year after he's formulated the notion of generalized foreclosure in the previous year. So he has the notion of generalized foreclosure, and he's pummeling the case of the Wolfman, looking to see what, what can be done with that. And he, he traces the three strands, the three libidinal strands in the Wolfman, um, including this third, including, shall we say, the, the imaginary and symbolic positions in relation to sexuality virile identification, identification with the mother. And a third strand, which is the strand which never recognized castration. So there we see something like the third strand, despite the fact that the Wolfman has a functioning sexual framework and libidinal orientation with an object and an identification, there's still running through that a seam of non-recognition of castration. Uh, and, and, uh, and, because then you, you see it clearer in Freud, the notion that that fundamental uh, can, can always reemerge, or whenever there's an obstacle encountered at, at, in one of the other registers, there's a reversion to, to, to that initial thing. Um, that's something about the idea of, of something that doesn't fit into the neurotic frame. But the other part, because it's a version of Jordan's question about repression and foreclosure, when we're reading some of these questions with the benefit of hindsight of the elaboration of this notion of generalized foreclosure, then the fundamental distinction between repression 
and foreclosure is not so easy to be, to be that clear about because what would be the notion of generalized foreclosure as a non-coincidence as, as non between symbolic and real to which we are all subject? And then the nice, neat bipartition between the clinic of neurosis and the clinic of psychosis, the clinic of repression and the clinic of foreclosure ceases to have the same traction because it, and, and that's when we get into the Borromean clinic, where fundamentally there's, there, there's something that has to be knotted artificially, um, whether in the neurotic or the, or the psychotic mode. Which operator is that? That's neither the neurotic operator of repression nor the clinically psychotic operator of foreclosure that we had relied on in the structural clinic but to some extent some Borromean slippage that will always requ require some kind of artificial knotting um, by whatever takes the, the, the place of the name of the father. And that's why we're starting with reading the case of the Wolfman rather than going straight to Schreber, where <coughs> the notion of foreclosure is already elaborated within the, fr the fully elaborated framework of the paternal metaphor, the relation to the name of the father, blah, 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 the classic clinic. Because actually, once we've had a look, because in the Wolfman, uh, the, the, there's, no, there's no notion of foreclosure of the, of the name of the father. I mean, it's, it's foreclosure, uh, it's a direct relation to castration. Because once we get to the clinic of Joyce and the Borromean clinic, it's no longer a reference to the father either. It, it's again a more immediate, but, but with a modified notion of what castration is. Castration is just a confrontation with the real. It's no longer this threat that I'm going to cut it off, la di la di la di la, and the, the, the father, the metaphor, the phallus, the, the name of the father. There, it's, it's again is, is the, the fundamental knotting that, that takes. So, and there's the question that's posed again about Joyce's psychosis, which again is not, is, is not so clearly posed. In, in the same way, Wolfman, psychotic or not, it's not even clear that's the interesting part of the question. And when we get to Joyce, the question is not, is Joyce psychotic or not? The question posed is, why was Joyce not mad? Because then it's the question of the stabilizing knotting that keeps that particular form of madness at bay, but it doesn't mean that any of us escape. Um, we're going to take that cafe downstairs closes a little. So we have 15 minutes, shall we say, to take a break. We'll start again at quarter to four with Susanna's presentation, which with any luck is going to re-elaborate some of these questions.